Hello and welcome to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network or streaming through your various listening devices. This is half an hour on the radio where we talk about science. My name's Stu and I've been looking to space in the last little week or so. To infinity and beyond? To infinity and beyond, indeed. Um, Always look to the stars you have. Never your mind on what where you are and what you were doing. <laughs> possibly. Yes. Possibly. Um, but yeah, there's been a lot of space science going on lately and some other spacey news. So I'm going to just sort of have a quick trip to space and, uh, and well, you know, most of it's been based on Earth, really, the science. But, uh, but yeah, some interesting space developments uh, over the last couple of weeks or last month or so. Um, Chris... What else has been going on in the world of science? Well, one thing that's been going on is, well, it's that special time of year when we have the um, the Nobel Prizes. Science-mas. Science-mas. It is, <laughs> it is kind of. I mean, there obviously are a lot of other science prizes now these days. You know, yeah. In Australia, we have you know Eureka Prizes and your Prime Minister's Prizes. You've got your new Breakthrough Prize, which is worth millions of dollars. Yeah. But the Nobel Prizes, they're the, they're the big ones that people go for, aren't they? They're like your Olympic gold medals. They're the- they're the OG science, science prizes. Yeah, yeah. So I'm having a bit of a look at the this year's Nobel prizes, and you know, are they interesting? Yeah, I think they're interesting. There's some interesting stuff going on there, and yeah, there's some interesting um, con- patterns yeah, that that I think need to be to be addressed. Look, it's always interesting to 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 find out who they've settled on. I mean, there's such, there's so much science being done all of the time mm. that you know, there's only one. Well, a couple of science prizes, I guess, within the Nobel Prizes. But, you know, once a year they get a chance to go, this is the most important thing that we looked at this year. That's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Look, it, yeah, I guess it is a big deal. But, um, yeah, these ones may not seem as big a deal to you, but there is some there is a controversy behind them, I think. So we'll look into that. Interesting. Well, stay tuned for that later in the show. The opening of the original Star Trek series used to tell us that space was the final frontier. Do you remember that opening yeah, sequence? Yeah, I do, I do yeah. remember that. Um, but look, obviously there's still a lot more stuff to explore on Earth before we have to turn to space as the final frontier. There's still lots of frontiers that we haven't explored yet. Yeah, but I think there's always going to be more stuff out in space than there is on Earth. That is true. That is true. Um but look, you know, part, part of the reason we look to space and space exploration and science of space is because it does explain a lot of things which do affect us on Earth, you know, physics and all sorts of things, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, the origin of the universe, which is a big question that people ponder. Um, so I just wanted to look at some of the space science stories that have caught my eye recently. And there's been a huge amount of spacey, sciencey stuff um, out there in the last even just the last month or so, but there always is. And I feel like we don't get enough time to talk about just how much science there is. But as far as space science, the first little snippet that caught my eye was uh, a sad part of space exploration is that, um, you know, it's quite dangerous. But uh, one of the early space pioneers who left the Earth early in the space age um, 
Russian cosmonaut Alexei Leonov passed away on the 11th of October in Moscow. Oh, so he, in Moscow, he in came, Mos- did come back to Earth. He did come back to Earth. Okay. Yes, he he did. Uh, he he went to space in uh, 1965, and he was the first person to basically leave a spacecraft while it was in space. So he went for the first spacewalk in right. in March 1965. And from the sound of things, it was pretty um, pretty basic. He sort of opened the door with his spacesuit on. And was tied to a tether, went out in space for a while, hung out for about twelve minutes. And then was this was this approved? Was he allowed to do this? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, uh, was it was definitely part of their part okay. of their mission. Um, so he went outside of the uh, Voskhod capsule for twelve minutes, um, beat the Americans by three months. They did the same thing about three months later. Um, now. As I said, space uh, exploration is risky. His spacewalk is a good example of just how risky the early space space missions were. Um, years later, they didn't reveal this at the time, but years later, they revealed that um, when he went outside, the expansion of the atmosphere inside his spacesuit made it blow up like a balloon to the point where he couldn't actually fit back through the door of the sp- oh. of the of the spacecraft and he had to like release a little vent so his suit would deflate enough that he could squeeze oh, wow. back through the door you so they, they didn't w- think of that before yeah, before he went out there you think that's an obvious one but yeah um, but yeah so talk about risky that's a mm. uh, pretty scary sort of situation to find yourself in that your space suit you're stuck outside too big yeah um, the keys in lucky that yeah lucky that they had given him a you know, the ability to, to vent mm. his suit. But, um, look, so, yeah, sad news that he passed away on the 11th of October. He was, you know, in his 80s, so, you know, he was not uh, a young man. Um, but meanwhile, back on Earth, our favourite billionaire and potential supervillain, Elon Musk, has unveiled SpaceX's newest space vehicle, the Starship, which is, you know, it's, it's a pretty... Um, Pretty uh, cocky thing to call a spaceship, really, a starship. It, it, look, it implies that it's going to stars yeah. rather than to... Uh, yeah, uh, rather than just to uh, to the moon, which is the first port of call where it's supposed to take people. Yeah. And also, but it, they are saying it will take people to other planets. This is the ship that SpaceX is saying will take people to Mars and even further away planets than Mars. So they're, they're not just saying, oh, yeah, we'll get to Mars. They're going, no, we'll, we'll yeah, go they're, they're wherever. They're not going to another star, though, are they? They're, no, they're not. There's, uh, they, they, they might go to one star, but we know where that one is. It's not very far away. I don't think they're going to go there either. No, they will. They go at night, so it's cooler. Ah. Um, <laughs> uh, but, look, I, I've seen pictures of, of the starship, and I've got to say, to me, it looks a bit like something that someone sketched on the back of a napkin over a... Over a boozy meeting and engineers have built it exactly it looks it looks to me like one of those old spaceships from the 50s sci-fi mm. movies and interestingly it takes off and lands like those old 50s sci-fi movies it takes off vertically and it lands vertically on its sort of tail this is this is in the same elon musk that wants to put us all in vacuum tubes and zip us around the on earth isn't yeah it? Yeah, I think he's got some really retro ideas. There. Yeah, he's he obviously grew up in a very certain specific era of of science fiction. I think. Um, <coughs> so yeah, look, you know, reusable spaceships that can deliver people to other planets and return them is obviously going to open up space exploration, whether that's commercial or 
purely scientific. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, but back on Earth, we're still finding out new facts about just about our own solar system. Um, using an Earth-bound telescope in Hawaii, Dr. Scott Shepard and his team have identified another 20 moons orbiting Saturn. An extra 20 moons they didn't even know about. Um, so there's now a total of 82 moons in orbit around Saturn that we have seen and know of. And you might think, wow, that's amazing. It's That's more than Jupiter now. They, it's mm-hmm. overtaken Jupiter. Jupiter's got 79 that have been seen. Do we know how seen. small these moons are? Like, are they... They're getting pretty small. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're sort of, you know, a few miles across, I think, okay. or a few kilometres sort of thing. Um, but he says, uh, he says that there's probably up to a hundred further moons orbiting Saturn, but we're not going to be able to see them from Earth unless we get some more powerful telescopes effectively. But I mean, really, probably easy to just put one in space and look at them from space. You don't or have to worry there. about... Or go there. Um, borrow Elon's Yeah, we'll let, let Elon check it out for and, us. And uh, just zip out there for the weekend yeah. and back again. Um Now, in other Earth-bound research, scientists have recently identified an interconnected web between galaxies that supports current theories of galactic formation. Um, Unlike what you might have heard from Star Trek Discovery, uh, it's not a network of fungal mycelium connecting the galaxies. No, that's in subspace, students. Oh, well, see, that's that's where I got it wrong. Uh, It's actually threads of hydrogen gas that span the space between the galaxies. So that's huge amounts of Mm. space where these threads are are joining up the different galaxies. So the theory is that when the Big Bang uh, kick-started the universe, lots of hydrogen formed very quickly, and it's obviously still the most abundant element in the universe. Uh, And the theory was that all that hydrogen collapsed under the force of its own gravity into sheets, and then the sheets collapsed into threads. And well, not just not just its own gravity, because dark matter is a large part of the mass of the universe. Yep. So it's kind of also responsible for the structure formation of the structure. Yes, and but yeah, so the so where these uh, these threads, this is the theory, where they collapsed and where they intersected, there was a lot more matter, and that's where the galaxies formed at these intersections of these threads of hydrogen. And there was probably other elements in there as well, but mainly hydrogen. Um, and so on Earth, they looked for specific wavelengths of radiation uh, and actually were able to see these filaments, which do actually connect the, all of the different galaxies. Um, so that's pretty much mm. demonstrated that that theory was, was pretty close to what actually happened. Um, so the, also the other thing about the the intergalactic strands of hydrogen is that that's where the galaxies draw the uh, the extra material that keeps the stars, um, you know, burning, basically. So they can actually draw, the, draw hydrogen from those threads into the galaxy, which then get drawn into stars and turned into other elements, which is where all the other elements come from. Um, so look, it's just a, a bit of a bit of amazing science which was achieved from Earth. They didn't have to go into space and go looking for these uh, hydrogen filaments. They actually could just uh, tune in and figure out exactly what they should look like, and then looked and went, "Yes, there they are." Um, but yeah, it's interesting that you know it's actually proven 
or, or demonstrated the theories of galactic formation were actually pretty accurate, which mm. is uh, you know, good to know that they're on the right track. Um, look, that's just a little bit of the spacey science from the last few weeks that have caught my eye. Um, and, you know, it, as I said, it may not be the final frontier, but there's certainly a lot of space out there for science to explore. Yes, you listen to Lost in Science, and as Stu said, it is a bit of science Christmas here for us. Yay. We're going to unwrap some Nobel Prizes. Deck the halls with boughs of holly. That's scientific. Yeah, yeah. that'll do. That'll yeah, do. It's fine. Now, of course, uh, there are a few different Nobel Prizes given out. There are three of them that um, are particularly science-y. You have, you have medicine, well, physiology and medicine. Yeah. You have physics and you have chemistry. Um, there is also economics. Uh, now we've discussed whether economics is actually science before. It is, I believe, called the dismal science. I think it was an economist who called it the dismal science. Now, is the, the economics prize wasn't one of the original prizes, was it? I think it's a bit different. Yeah, it's, it's awarded been by added a in later body. On. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was often given to things like psychology or mathematics as well, um, because they take a fairly broad view of what economics is. So mm. sometimes you're, you've got to watch the economics prize. Sometimes it is quite science-y. Yeah. Um, so you've got to keep an eye on that one as well. But you have your main three big The big three. Ones. Yeah, yeah. And look, on the face of this year, look, we're going to run through what they are. They seem like pretty straightforward, this year's one, pretty non-controversial. But there is, there is something there that I will get into that later on. Okay. Um, it's manufactured controversy. I don't know. We'll see how well I can manufacture things. I mean, you know, do, do, does do the Nobel prize have to market themselves with controversy or are people just interested anyway people are interested anyway yeah. but yes anyway okay so the first one that was awarded was the nobel prize in physiology or medicine and it went to william j kalin jr sir peter j ratcliffe and greg l semenza for their discoveries of how cells sense and adapt to oxygen availability so this is a fairly fairly technical complicated thing they discovered the mechanism um, the three of them obviously working with other people with them, um, you know, very, various stages of how, of how the whole kind of response to oxygen works. It does sound very, very technical. What is the, is there some over overwhelming need that we understand that? Yeah, it's basically understanding how uh, physiology works, how, how our biology works. And there is some use to it. I mean, ultimately this helps you understand things like, um, Say, uh, you know, there's some, some genetic illnesses, uh, and it helps you understand things like um, cancer cells have a different relation to oxygen than, um, than normal cells. Oh, so the um, way, yeah, so the way healthy cells react is different to the way unhealthy cells react, and, and yeah, probably, you know, the lack of 
ability to react would make you unhealthy as well. Yeah, and yeah. also we need oxygen. So understanding yeah. how that works is fairly important. It is pretty important. So so basically what happens, the, the main mechanism seems to be going on is that there is... Uh, there is this thing called the hypoxia inducible factor, HIF1-alpha. Is this a gene? This is a transcription factor. It right. I acts on the genes to basically transcribe the genes. Okay. And so essentially um, this this is produced in the, in the cells, um, but it is degraded by another protein, another sort of or protea, pro, protease. Yeah, so it's an enzyme that breaks down this... Proteasome, I mean, sorry. This uh, yeah. this factor. Yeah. yeah, and so this the uh, there's other um, enzyme basically. It so it binds to the HIF one alpha to degrade it, and to bind to it, it needs um, a certain level of oxygen to do that. So the oxygen is part of the reaction that helps this bind to the HIF uh, one alpha. Yeah. So what happens is if when you don't have enough uh, oxygen in the system then the the binding doesn't work this protease proteasome doesn't degrade the HIF 1 alpha so if levels of that increase then it acts on your on the the DNA in the genes to make them produce a, a hormone called erythropoietin 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 which then tells the body to make more red blood cells Oh, to then wow. increase the level of oxygen, so it's quite a complicated mechanism. Yeah, mechanism. it really is. Yeah, and that's one of the things that that that, that happens. The other response of the body to low oxygen is to actually grow new blood vessels to try and get more blood in there. But yeah, the, so the, the, more, the quicker response is to grow new red blood cells. Yeah, and the more red blood cells, the more oxygen can be carried. Yeah, yeah essentially. Yeah, amazing. So yeah, it's quite a complicated thing. As I said, it, it you know you can track through this to various other kind of um, genetic illnesses and um, other effects this might have. Um, I find it also interesting. I'd heard of this erythropoietin before because it is used as a performance-enhancing drug. Ah, this EPO is it's often shortened to, right. and it, of course, increases the amount of red blood cells in your body. So, so it's athletes have been caught doping yeah, themselves with that, and boosting to, their amount of red blood cells to boost their blood oxygen carrying capacity. Um, but it, it is used, used legitimately within your body for a legitimate purpose when yeah. the oxygen levels get low. Probably makes it hard to trace too. If you've yeah, got, that's one you of know, the If you've got elevated why. levels of that, they might just go, well, maybe you're just a genetic mutation. Yeah. 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 So what else? What else? Okay, Nobel Prize in Physics. Now, this was awarded... Um, well, it was awarded to, to two different groups. So it was awarded for contributions to our understanding of the evolution of the universe and Earth's place in the cosmos. That's the, the Nobel kind of mm-hmm. sort of description there. Now, the way the Nobel Prizes work is usually either it can be given to one person, it can be given to two people, um, it can be to three people equally, I think, or two, so one person, then two people who share the other half. Right. So in this case, half of it went to James Peebles for his theoretical discoveries in physical cosmology. The other half was set, given jointly to Michael Mayer, sorry, Michel Mayer and Didier Queloz, um, Swiss scientist, for the discovery of an exoplanet orbiting a solar-type star. So going through those two halves, James Peebles, what he did, he... Um, Back in the day, many, many years ago, he predicted that there would be cosmic microwave background radiation. This is essentially the heat left over from the explosion of the Big Bang. Yeah. And this is what we use now to study the early universe. So he predicted that. That was when they discovered by the radio astronomers Penzias and Wilson. Oh, and this is when they, they, were, they thought it was a, a malfunction with their equipment, is that? They thought it was uh, various things. They thought it was like bird poo in the <laughs> antenna the, and this uh, kind yeah, of yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah. 
um, but it turned out to be a signal coming from everywhere. Uh, and so it was people's work that helped them understand what it was. Mm. Um, but he didn't just stop at predicting this. He also kind of pioneered the study of the cosmic microwave background, which has given us all kinds of insight into the early universe and the structure of the universe overall. So you can look at the cosmic microwave background and you can work out things like the amount of matter to dark matter and dark energy and that sort of thing. So a lot of our understanding of, of the makeup of the universe, the composition, the fact that we know that like normal matter is only 5% of the the mass and energy of the universe that comes from studying things like the the cosmic microwave background and that stuff that um, that people's um, pioneered. Right. Um, the, the interestingly, it's a, it's a normal matter. It's like atoms and stuff. It's only about five percent of the of the um, of the the mass of the universe, and most of that is tied up in those hydrogen filaments, those intergalactic filaments yeah. that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. that we were talking about before. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, but yeah, you can see things like um, you know, basically, essentially, from looking at the cosmic micro background, you can see essentially how much interacting matter there must be compared to mass that is not interacting with anything, and it causes different effects and structures in the and you know, frequencies in the in the micro background. Right. Um, then the other half, of course, was for finding an exoplanet. Now, this was an exoplanet that was around, as I said, a solar type star. So essentially. Um, people had found exoplanets before these guys, but around pulsars. So pulsars are a type of neutron star that emits uh, radio pulses, mm -hmm. and um, you can see the effect of, say, a planet's gravity on a on a pulsar by changes to like wobbling to its orbit and wobbles to the radio beam that's coming out of it. So they were kind of easy to spot. Yeah, easy that was to spot. The point. Yeah, yeah. So these guys found it around a normal star. And again, they looked at the effect of the planet's gravity on the stars. You can see its orbit or its, its motion. You can, it's sort of wobbling uh, as the effect of the gravity of the planet. So that means you're basically looking for large planets, yeah. things much bigger than Jupiter. Yeah. Um, now, nowadays, of course, we have powerful telescopes. We can actually see um, much smaller planets transiting in front of their parent star. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, they were the first ones to confirm that they were around like regular stars. Now they've been found around all kinds of different stars. And so we know there are a lot of planets out there. So when they say a solar-like star, they mean a star that's similar to our sun. Well, they mean, they mean yeah, a star that's just a regular star that burns hydrogen, right. fusion, that kind of yep. stuff. So a main sequence star. Yep. Okay. Um, chemistry. Let's look at chemistry. Now, Can't no, ever forget chemistry. I try not to. Uh, it's probably the, the one that's had the most, well, the one that's had the most effect on our lives. Yeah. Um, this was the Nobel Prize of Chemistry went to John Goodenough, uh, M. Stanley Whittingham, and Akiro Yoshino for the development of lithium-ion batteries. Oh, well, where would we be without lithium-ion batteries? Well, that's the thing. Where would we be without lithium-ion batteries? They have basically given us some modern technology that, that we enjoy today. Yeah, I mean, you know, probably lots of people listening are relying on lithium-ion batteries to listen to what they're listening on. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, Whittingham, he found that lithium, basically, it's it's a very light element. It readily becomes ionised, it loses an electron, it becomes ionised. So it's very good for, um, yeah, as a battery, for, to, to release electricity. And because it's so light, you get a very kind of efficient battery that is quite lightweight as well. Yeah, so it's good for putting in electronics yeah yeah good enough found ways to other components to add in to make them more powerful including also um, non-toxic materials like iron phosphate can be added in the electrodes and stuff like that so they're not only um, you know very kind of light but they're also made from non-toxic materials 
Uh, and Akira Yoshino found a way to use, uh, rather than using a solid lump of lithium, he used lithium ions embedded in kind of a substrate, which basically protects the, the lithium from corrosion and means that the battery is much more durable, can be recharged many, many times. Right. So together, these things have given us, yeah, these, yeah. these lightweight mobile devices. They've given us... Uh, obviously, lightweight batteries for electric cars, yeah. and also now cheap storage for solar power uh, generation. So, you know, the the Elon Musk's um, electric cars walls. You know the oh, what yeah, call yeah, the, the power wall, yeah, the power walls, that yeah. kind of stuff. So, this is yeah, this is it's a fairly big, significant discovery um, that is the basis for a lot of current and near future technology. You could say. Right now, um, in, of those of those um, winners, um, John Goodenough um, was also notable because he was the oldest ever laureate at ninety seven years old. Um, so when did he do his work that he was awarded for? This is years and years ago, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, apparently he still goes to the lab every day. Wow. But yeah, one of the rules of the Nobel Prize is it can't be given posthumously. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You have to be alive when, yeah. well, at least when you're nominated. I think you can die. Just before your award, but once they decide to give it to you, uh, yeah, I was going to say, I hope, I hope that you know they that that would be in the rules that once they've awarded it to you, even if you don't get there to actually get the award, you still get the award, surely, yeah. yeah. Now, so I did say there was. I think there's a bit of a controversy. Yeah, here. yeah. So okay, for that, I am going to look at one of the non-science prizes. Okay, okay. So the literature prize. Oh, now yes. I don't know if you are aware, but the the there were two literature prizes given out this year and that's because they did not award a Nobel Prize for Literature last year and the reason they did that is because there was a sexual assault scandal in the in the um, committee that awards uh, the Literature Nobel Prize and so they decided they would not give out an award in 2018 so they had one sort of left over they, that's why they gave two right so the 2018 the award was actually up. given out this year yeah now this was of course in the part of the you know in the wake of the Me Too movement as well yeah and now particularly focus on the literature price people are saying oh that there should be come we need to clean it up so it needs to be basically also more diverse you know we need to actually lift our game here yeah and that mean obviously more women getting prizes but also less of a european focus because yeah. the literature has been very european focused mm-hmm. uh and that you know those, that's very sensible um literature is all about art you can see you want those different perspectives here but you know the same principles really apply to the other prizes as well yeah and when we look at these science prizes Basically, we have um, nine winners, and they're all men. Yeah. Um, they are mostly from Europe or America. We had Akira Yoshino as the sole person from, not from Europe or the United States. Yeah. So it's very much a non-diverse group. I mean, of, yeah, we've, we've, we've gone through in detail how few women have been awarded the science prizes, at the Nobel Prizes, and it, it really is, you know... Yeah. It, it's a very small number, embarrassingly look, they, small. They are they are slowly increasing. Um, yeah, look, twelve women have won a prize in physiology and medicine, five in chemistry, only three in physics, and one mm-hmm. of those was Donna Strickland, who won last year. Yeah. So you know the numbers, as you if you look at the the numbers of the years, they are slowly increasing, but at a much slower rate than than is needed. Um, now, obviously, I know a bit more about physics than the other sciences involved here. Yeah. Um, but it is worth looking at. You know. I'm obviously aware that there are some notable omissions. Now, one I think that is particularly notable in the light of this year's award is um, Vera Rubin, who essentially provided some of the first evidence for dark matter. And 
I'm not saying there's no controversy around dark matter, but we've had prizes awarded for dark matter and dark energy before. And James Peebles today got an award for cosmology, which involves dark matter as a study of the yeah. universe and that sort of thing. So it makes you wonder why someone like Vera Rubin missed out um, when she did such groundbreaking work. Now, as I said, you can't um, win a prize after, you, after you're dead. She did her work decades and decades ago. She died in 2016. Yeah. So there was plenty of time for, to recognise her for plenty achievements. Plenty of opportunity, yeah. And it's not like they're ignoring cosmology because they've just given out a prize for it. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's safe to say that there is still a lot of their game they can lift. Yeah. And I guess we, all we can do is hope that next year they do a bit better. Yeah. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.